Did you ever think that you were going to hit a billion dollar company? No, I never did. I never even thought about it. In fact, we were doing about 10 to 15, 18 million dollars a week in sales. And I never thought much about it, Chris. I really didn't. I didn't think, wow, look at me. I just said, let's keep pouring it on. Let's keep pouring it on. Because what I got excited about is how much people made working for us. Yeah. That's what excited me. I, I loved handing out checks to people, $20,000 checks, $30,000 checks for a week's work and sales. That's what I really loved. I never sat down there and said, I want to create a billion dollar agency. That was never in my vocabulary. I didn't think about that. Don't ever work to sell your company. Work like you're never going to sell your company. Always keep pouring into it constantly. Don't look left. Don't look right. Look straight ahead. Put the blinders on and always be pouring into that company like it's going to be there forever. We stand today. The Business Method with a shout The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of all ages, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring over 500 episodes of entrepreneurs and high-performance experts dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. We've been fortunate enough to interview some of the leading experts in business and performance today. The billionaire CEO of Priceline, Jeff Hoffman, the CEO of Chipotle, Monty Moran, world's top big wave surfer, Laird Hamilton, the first black woman to build a billion dollar company, Janet Halroyd, world's top investment expert, Jim Rogers, and the list goes on and on. All of these guests you can find on the podcast backlog using Apple, Spotify, YouTube, Google, and any podcast app you prefer. Also, you guys, have you started listening to our micro high performance episodes yet? We've taken the most powerful tips and tricks from over 400 interviews that our guests have shared on how to optimize their own personal performance, and we've made them into digestible micro-podcast episodes that are just two to 10 minutes long. We publish these on Monday and Friday each week, and those episodes are labeled as HP number 123456 and so on. Those episodes are live now, and they're designed for you to consume some quick, high-quality content while you only have a few minutes to spare. So be sure to subscribe to the Business Method podcast on your favorite app so you can get those delivered as soon as they're live. And now, let's hop into today's episode. The Business Method. Hey listeners, real quick before we get started, I wanted to tell you about our trips and adventures for entrepreneurs. We have live events in different locations around the world, luxury trips to the Caribbean, adventurous trips to knock off your bucket list, and of course some private business events as well. If you're an entrepreneur, we'd love to have you join us. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at thebusinessmethod.com to stay updated. And for those established entrepreneurs out there that want to be involved in a community that is curated specifically for seasoned business minds, then we have a group for you. Inside this group, we have private live events in different locations around the world specifically for our members. We get those members in a place where they can connect, collaborate, and grow their companies faster just by being around one another. We also organize private podcast viewings and Q&A sessions with some of the world's top entrepreneurs like Jim Rogers, Alex Hermosi, the CEO of Chipotle, the marketing mind behind GoPro. And as a member of our group, you'll get to hop on calls with our podcast guests regularly to ask them any questions you want. And the last benefit is access to private world-class masterminds that are specifically curated for whatever challenges you're going through at the time. Our purpose with this private community is to help you expand your network, connect with some of the brightest minds in business today, and help one another overcome business challenges faster. You can learn more about our community at thebusinessmethod.com. Remember, subscribe to stay updated. And now, 
Let's hop into today's show. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Welcome to the show today, and we have a whirlwind of an entrepreneur that has an incredible life story that started an agency from scratch and leading the organization to become a $3 billion company. His name is Michael McIntyre, and he has been an entrepreneur for over 28 years. He started his own insurance agency way back in 1992, which quickly expanded into over 40 states and grew to $300 million in annual sales. That organization then became public and turned into a $3 billion company after its IPO. Michael and his agency have personally created over 175 millionaires and recruited and trained over 20,000 sales reps. He now is a coach and consultant and author, and he's on the podcast today telling us how he did it all. Michael, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing great, Chris. Thank you so much for that kind introduction and uh, just so glad to be here and I'm excited. Thanks. It's always fun to talk to a, a well-seasoned entrepreneur that has done so many things. 1992, I was 12. And, <laughs> and Back in the Stone Age, right? I, it feels like it's so crazy Like now that there's two or three generations younger than, than mine. But uh, yeah. how, how old were you in 1992? Oh my gosh! Now you got to make me think here. Yeah. I guess I was th I was thirty years old, thirty one years old. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Yeah. And had yeah. you have any previous entrepreneur experience before that? Not really. I mean, I did. I, I say not really. I mean, I did odd things when I was growing up. Uh, I grew up in uh, Michigan and mm -hmm. uh, come from a divorced family and uh, five kids. My mother was raising us by herself, so I did odd jobs. I did odd things. Had the paper route. Did snow shoveling. Mm -hmm. Uh, Michigan, it's a big prosperous uh, undertaking, yeah. and which was good. And I was really young and I did that. And I really had a flair to go out there, start little small businesses, which I did. Uh, but I, I went uh, when I joined the Air Force and uh, right out of high school and my mom and dad couldn't send me to college. They didn't have any money. So I joined the Air Force to get my education. And, and while I was in the Air Force, I took on a few entrepreneur things. I did some TV acting and some modeling and then uh, got my college degree while I was there, then left the Air Force and moved to Dallas. And that's when I really started, things started getting interesting. How, how I, I've never heard of somebody in service that decided to do some TV acting and modeling while in service. Where, like, how did that happen? Oh man, it was so bizarre. I tell you, Chris, it was, uh, I was doing this. I was, uh, going to college full-time and there was a person there that was, uh, and I, I, I say full-time, I was taking 12 hours a semester okay. and in between my air force job. And so there was a person there that was also, uh, going to college from, uh, their parents were in the military. And so they were taking advantage of some GI bill and they worked for a, uh, a modeling agency an acting agency in, in little rock, Arkansas. And so, they approached me and said, would you like to do some TV commercials for Dillard's, uh, the clothing store? Oh, wow. And so, okay. And they said, pay $75 an hour. And at that time, Chris, $75 an hour was like, you know, a hundred grand a day. That's a I lot mean, of money. Wow. A lot of money. And I said, yeah, you know, as long as I can keep my clothes on, I'll do whatever you want me to do. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I did that and I, I did pretty well at it for, I don't know, it's probably for about a year and it was kind of fun. Uh, it was easy. And so, yeah, it was kind of weird. But, what was your role in the Air Force? Uh, I was a security specialist in uh, the Titan II intercontinental ballistic missiles. And oh, wow. uh, yeah, we dealt with the nukes and it was interesting. It was four years and um, it was kind of interesting at first. You know, when I went in when I was very young, I was 17 years old. My parents had to sign me and just got out of high school and 
so when I got there, it was all fascinating, but that got old after about a year and a half. But what was really good, the Air Force taught me a lot of discipline. It taught me how to get up in the morning. It taught me how to work with a diverse bunch of people. Um, and it taught me, it, it taught me discipline, which was really something good. And, uh, yeah. And I went to college full-time, went to Arkansas state university mm-hmm. and got my, got my degree there while I was there in business. And so I got discharged, um, uh, in 1982, 19, yeah, 1982. What was really cool though, there was, this is back again, a long time ago. And I was one of the few guys in the air force that was taking in my level that was taking advantage of college education. And so, the officers looked at favor on me and gave me time off for a lot of different things, which was really good. Something that just stood out when uh, you said this, Michael, but you, you joined the Air Force when you were 17, did it uh, for four years. The, the, the Air Force really had such young guys ha- handling security for nukes back then. Like that seems a little <laughs> <great>. crazy, man. <laughs> Listen, I love, I, and I, I graduated in, uh, in, and uh, I guess it was in that, that summer of 78, went uh-huh. right into the Air Force in August. And uh, yeah, I didn't turn 18 until October. So my parents had to sign me in. But yeah, I mean, we were dealing with nuclear weapons and and now we were guarding them mostly, Chris. I mean, right. we, weren't, we didn't have we didn't have uh, uh, to the, you know, the new codes or anything like that. But it was interesting because I was 17, 18 years old. And I remember that I had a 40 mic mic grenade launcher, a 45 caliber, and an M16 machine gun oh, that I was wow. that I was very proficient at. I mean, they do train you well. I mean, uh, you know, we went through like you know four months of boot camp with that stuff. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's a young man's game. I get yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, well, uh, <laughs> that's a wild story. Um, so so fast. Okay, so you went to college and you went through the Air Force and yeah. then probably had another six or seven years in between then. And when you started the agency, what were you doing during that time? I was selling insurance. I, I got in okay. the insurance. My, uh, I, I went to do some, I, I did some more of the, you know, acting and modeling stuff, but it was just hit and miss stuff. Yeah. And so I got in the insurance business and uh, by accident, really, because I, I, I was working at a really high-end clothing store. I got discharged from the Air Force, moved to Dallas, um, I love Dallas. My uncle had moved here. And, and so I came and visited while I was in the Air Force and I fell in love with the city. And so I was working at a high end men's clothing store selling like, you know, these Brioni suits that were like $4,000 each. And these guys came in and they said, Hey, you look like you could sell insurance. I said, Yeah, I bet I could. And so they said, Why don't you come out here and, and try and anything to get out of it, you know, selling clothes. Uh-huh. And so I went out and I got my insurance license in 90 days. I'm out selling insurance and I'll never forget it, Chris. My first check out, uh, I, I was running appointments for this company and these leads and I was out in West Texas and I made like $6,408, which is more than I had made the whole previous year in the air force on my W2. Wow. And I knew, I knew at that point, man, this is where I need to be. It was like, I was like black tower heroin, man. I'm, I'm, I'm on this insurance thing. And so, yeah, I just knew it was a natural for me and uh, I was good at it. I really enjoyed it. Were you, were you selling door to door back then? No, no, we had, uh, it had a really nice system. Uh, okay. we were, I was really blessed. We had a, uh, a lead system and they actually set our appointments. And so we were oh, selling nice. uh, estate, we were selling estate planning at, at life insurance and uh, to the senior market. And, it was really good. I, I, I was really young. I was 23 years old. I guess it was 22 years old. I uh, just got my insurance license, got discharged from the air force and, 
and I was on fire and I, I won all the awards that year. Uh, I never forget. And the, 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 the Christmas party, I won a brand new car. I won a Rolex watch and 5,000 hours cash. And I, I had no idea I was that wow. good until, uh, you know, some of the old timers came up to me and said, man, how are you doing this? I said, I don't know. I just work, you know, um, <laughs> I, I, I think, I think I took that Midwestern work ethic and that air force experience and, you know, just went out there and worked and I did. And, um, I broke all the records and it was just a really, it was a natural fit for me, Chris, to be in sales and doing that. And I loved it. And I did that for, uh, I guess, I don't know about, uh, three years, the company changed up. And so I went with another company, got into health insurance business and did really well in that. And then, uh, decided to start my own agency. And that's when I, I started the, my own agency and, uh, as I say from that, the rest is history, but there's a lot in between in there, of course. What do you think set you apart from the rest of the sales agents? Because I've done sales. I, I was in sales um, with mortgages and with uh, real estate. And, and um, you know, I, I was decent at sales. I was above average, but there was always, you know, it seemed like a few people at the top that became the best in the recruiters. Yeah. And they just have a natural instinct to them, I think. What do you think that is for you um, that set you above the rest? It's a great question. I think, you know, people ask me that a lot. And uh, especially when you start making money, they, they always want to know what the secret is. What do you yeah. do? You know? And it's real simple. I, I, there's, there's a couple of explanations. First of all, the obvious one is perseverance. Right. Okay. Uh, you've got to be able to persevere because rejection's going to happen in sales, as you know. Uh, and look, rejection sucks. There's just no, <laughs> there's just no way around it. I don't care if it's in a relationship, it's in if it's in a marriage, if it's in a business opportunity, if it's in sales. When people say no or they don't want to see you, it's a rejection process, and that and nobody likes that. Mm -hmm. But you have to get yourself ready for that. You have to kind of you know I guess you know get the rhino skin, so to speak. You got to be thick skinned on that, and you've got to be able to deal with that. That's one thing. The other thing is persevere. Don't quit. Uh, I had a manager tell me early on, said McIntyre, whatever you do. You can quit all you want. You can quit every day. You can quit every night. You can quit every morning, quit every afternoon. Just don't tell anybody that you quit. Okay. <laughs> you know, and because in sales, as you know, I mean, I was on straight commission and it's, it, it, it's not for the faint hearted. Right. And so you might get discouraged and you might want to quit and, you know, cuss out everybody, the universe, but then, Hey, don't tell anybody, just get, you know, get it out of your system. I call it throwing up take 10 minutes to throw up and then get back after it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Then you feel better about yourself. And I guess probably the the biggest thing, Chris is in sales. What really separated, I think my success from other people's failures was the fact that I, I didn't want to do the same thing that they didn't want to do. I didn't want to have to drive six hours. I didn't want to have to stay in a, you know, a dump in your hotel. I didn't want to have to, you know, get up on, you know, Sunday morning and drive, you know, four hours to get ready for my appointments on Monday. I didn't want to do any of that, but I did it anyway. Yeah. And that's, I think the simplest thing in it. Yes. You need to be able to communicate. Yes. You need to be able to have personality. I used to tell when we used to recruit salespeople, I said, listen, if you don't have a personality, son, you better rent one <laughs> <laughs> at least for, at least for five days a week, right. because you know, nobody wants to talk to a, you know, uh, to a, you know, mortuary, you know, salesperson, everybody, you know, you got to have a personality. And so 
I think perseverance, you know, never quit. And, uh, you know, just, just do the things you don't want to do. Right. So, so we're in 1992 and you decide you were you just doing so well, you, you decided to start your own agency? Uh, partly. And yeah. So my father-in-law had died suddenly in 1992 and it was really difficult for my wife and I, and he, I was very close to, he was kind of a mentor to me okay. and it was a sudden death and, uh, it was really dramatic and, and very difficult, but, um, uh, yeah, so I, I decided to start my own company and just because I needed to make a living. And uh, the industry had changed from the health insurance and life insurance. And so my brother and I, who had been working in sales before, got together and started working together. And we went out there and we started a whole new company from scratch. And so what we did is take, take this estate planning and make it easy for the average person to get estate planning. Because at that time, the only people who were really getting great estate planning were the millionaires or the 20 millionaire net, net five millionaires and the net high net worth people. So we wanted to take it out to the masses. You know, our, our, our motto yeah. was, if you can, if you, if you sell to the masses, you dine with the classes. Right. And okay. so I like we, that. Yeah. We went out there and, and took this and dummied it down and brought it out to the masses. And that's when we started. It was in late 1992. Okay. And um, were you, did you start this on your own or did you have partners? Okay. No, it was just, just myself. What were the first steps that you took? Uh, mainly getting my American Express card cleared because <laughs> I had no money. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I had, I had uh, a little bit of money and I paid down my house at the time. Uh, just so I wouldn't have to, if in Texas, if we did file bankruptcy, they had a homestead exemption. And so, uh, yeah. I didn't have much money, but I wanted to protect my assets for my family. So, uh, I had an American express card at the time and I had like an $80,000 credit, a, a, a line of credit on it per month. And that's the first thing I did. You know, I, I teach people nowadays that especially entrepreneurs, when I coach them is the worst thing you could do is have a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Uh, because it makes you lazy. And what I did is with that American Express card, it made me very creative, Chris, and how to market this thing. So the first thing we did is I went out there and sold the product, developed a sales presentation, developed the whole presentation as lead systems and tested it. It took me about three months to get it, get it right. And then we started doing direct mail and uh, it was pretty phenomenal. We started really doing mm. well. And it, by, by the time I got ready to sell the company, we were probably spending about eight and a half million dollars a year just on postage. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so one thing that I think is really key, Michael, that you mentioned is, is you created systems and tested them at the be very beginning. And I see so many entrepreneurs f not do this. And yeah. I think that's a really valuable lesson. Um, could, you, could you talk a bit more about the systems that you created then and maybe give some advice to the listeners on how they can create their own systems and test them and make sure that they're the right systems for their company? Yeah, no, that's great, Chris. It's a good observation. Look, the, the fact is most salespeople, most entrepreneurs that are listening here probably are like me with a type A personality. You know, mm. uh, they're drive, drive. They don't want to slow down and figure stuff out. But what happens, you, you can do that when you have a small shop. You can, you can, you know, uh, you know, ramrod the deal by yourself or with you have two or three people because because the, the margins are so fat, you'll make it won't hurt your mistakes. But when you get to be a regular business, when you're actually filing a tax return and you're actually doing things, you know, you really have to have systems. And so uh, the first system we had to figure out is is to make sure that we had a lead system, because 
you can have in the insurance world, in my world, in marketing, there's a billion great products. Mm-hmm. Everybody's got a great product, whether it's, you know, the latest MLM or the latest life insurance universal, whatever it is, or the Bitcoin or the, the FinTech or the crypto uh, or the algorithm in Forex. Everybody's got a great system. That's not hard to get or a great product. product. What the, what's the hard thing to do is have leads. And that'll be that this way a hundred years from now, Chris, you've got to have leads. And you see on LinkedIn, I mean, you probably get hit. I get, you know, 15 mm-hmm. hits an hour on LinkedIn about, you know, setting my leads, you know, and there's a reason for that because people, most salespeople are lazy. They don't want to have to go out there and get their leads. So the first thing we did is figure out a great lead system. And we did. And how we did that, we beta tested it and we did a direct mail campaign. And I went out there and I spent seventeen thousand dollars. I'll never forget it because I think I blacked out when I wrote the check back then. <laughs> but I spent seventeen thousand dollars, and we we did this mailing. We did three different mailings to test each different mail piece, and the one that came in good. And it took six weeks back then. It was six long weeks, man. Because by the time the mail got sorted, got put, because you buy the cheapest way to deliver mail back then it was carry route and sort. And so you want to, you don't want to pay. 18 cents for you wanted to pay five cents and nine cents. And so it was very slow, but it came back. And when it finally came back, it told us what lead piece, what direct mail piece worked. That was the first system. The second system was now to make sure that we had the salesperson showing up at the house. Now I know you're going to find this hard to believe Chris, but salespeople are lazy. (laughs) That's right. I said it. Right. That's why we get into sales in the first place to try right. and be more lazy, right? Yeah, because you can, they've got the gift that God blessed them with that they can sit there and sell and then make 10 grand and sit on their butt for the next four weeks. Right. So what, what we did is we wanted to make sure the salespeople ran their appointments because if we just gave them the leads, which we did for a while, oh my gosh, they'd come up with 85 you know, excuses come Sunday why they couldn't run the appointments. you know. And we had people, you know, you know, leave them in the car or leave them at the hotel or the car wash guy threw them away or whatever. And these things were, you know, 10 and 20 hour bills were handing them. They're very expensive to generate. So the second system we had was making sure that the salespeople followed through and followed up. And how we did that, we held their hand, we set their appointments. And then after they ran the appointment, they would call in and verify what happened. And we would call the client back and do a QC on the call. Okay. That was the second system. Third system was paying the agent, paying the sales rep. We found that salespeople want instant gratification. Imagine that, right? So so if we can pay that agent within one week and a half of them turning their sales business in, then we'd had a deal. So we had the lead system, we had the delivery system, and we had the pay system. We had those three things figured out. And then what we put in was the incentive system. And the incentive system, system, system excuse me, was motivating and, and promoting. Salespeople love to hear their name. They love to see their name on a plaque. They love to see their name in lights. And, you know, that's what we did. We promoted them. They felt like Hollywood movie stars every time they came into our office. We made big things about them, especially the big sales. The big dog got to eat. The big dog would come in. We'd have a big check. We'd have his wife come in and deliver the check to him and tell him how big a hero he was. And and just to motivate them. Because, look, the people that went out there back in, you know, the 90s when we were doing this thing, you know, they would make $250,000, $300,000 a year. That was big money back then, and very few people could do it. Right. And so the a straight commission. So we motivated them. Then we'd take them on trips. Then we'd make sure 
that the wives were happy. And I'm, I know I'm some sexist with saying wives. We had female salespeople too, but mostly we were the men. But we would promote them also. The, the, the sixth system, system, if you will, fifth or sixth, is to just uh, let, let them enjoy, let them uh, enjoy the fruits of their labor. And we would send them on nice trips to, to, to Rome, to France, to Monte Carlo, to Alaska cruise trips, to Cabo San Lucas, that kind of thing. So we had that figured out. So once you had all those systems and look, this stuff didn't happen overnight. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it took, it took about four, three to four years to really get it to mastery. And then it was still, uh, then we still had to keep changing and, and, and tweaking the system uh, because things would change. I think that's another really important lesson. Like you, you mentioned, it took three to four years to get to mastery of, of your system. And then, you know, you continually did that over time. Even uh, you said you were, I think, putting 8.5 million into um, leads oh, annually yeah. Yeah, at one point. And, um, and, and, and that's a, a, real, a realistic expectation for the entrepreneurs out there is like Michael worked three to four years to get his systems down in the very beginning. And uh, most people hope as newer entrepreneurs that they're going to make, you know, their millions within three to four years. And, and it's just not, it's possible, but not probable. Right. Right. And, and so, you know, you're, you're thinking long-term, you're strategizing long-term. Would you say you're naturally good at long-term thinking is, or is that just something that you happen just kind of do along the way. Were you long-term planning this business at all or no, no. Okay. <laughs> no, I laugh when you say that. And I, I can hear all my, all my, uh, my old, my old, uh, uh staff in there just snickering right now. Because, <laughs> no, no, I what I, what I did do though. Uh, no, because I, you know, no, I was ADD all over the place. I wanted, you know, you know, I would, I would crunch it and dunch it like overnight, you know, stack them and rack them and let's go on to the next thing. And so that, that was probably my flaw in, in a big business. And I write in my book, probably the first thing I, I, the first chapter I talk about is I probably held on too long as an entrepreneur. I should have brought in more professional management later on, but that's another story. Um, but no, what I did, what, what, what I was blessed with Chris is knowing that my limitations are what they are. My, you know, I'm an expert at motivating. I'm an expert at coaching. I'm an expert at sales, uh, inspirational and, and, and making it rain. I'm a rainmaker. What I'm not good at is troughing that rain. What I'm not good at is setting up forecast and setting up, you know, vast systems. I couldn't run the computer. I mean, you know, and they wouldn't give me the checkbook because, I would screw it up before dark. You know, mm -hmm. I knew I knew what I was good at. And so I surrounded myself with people. I hired a bunch of MBAs, even hired a PhD. And um, I had uh, some I had a really good staff. We ended up with uh, some really great staff and we had, I don't know, 40, 50 people in the home office. And I paid them well, too. I did. I tied their you know, I gave them good salaries, but I also tied them to the, the, the profitability of the company, which I think was really good. And with that, you know, they would do a lot of forecasting. Now we would have arguments about the forecasting because I always looked at, you know, hitting Mars and they would say, listen, let's just get to the moon. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. they, they would have to, they would have to temper me down a little bit. And then sometimes they would give me a little bit more, but it was good to have that. So no, I wasn't a for, I, I wouldn't think out past, you know, a year and a half, 18 months was like going out way into the future for me. Uh, but they would plan out things five to 10 years down the road, which was really beneficial. Okay. How, when you're, when you're like that, cause I think a lot of entrepreneurs do want to aim for Mars and then have a team that shoots for the moon. And, and I think that's, 
that's a great combination to have. But how do you manage that as as a boss and as a leader? Because um, you know, it would be easy to say, "Oh, they don't. My team's not dreaming as big as I do. Maybe we should get somebody else on the team." Sort of thing. Yeah. No, it's it's good. Yeah. So my 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 whole theory on that was always keep my aces in their places, right? Okay. And. Listen, I was a visionary. I was the entrepreneur. I was the motivator. I, I was the, you know, that person. Uh, and we can only have one of those. You know, mm-hmm. you, you can't have two number ones because it just doesn't work. Right. So but then you, you need to have a COO. You need to have a, you know, uh, you need to have a, a CFO. You need to have these people in place that are going to really help mold this and do the right thing. And look, it was um, we, we would get into some heated arguments mm-hmm. and and I love that they had passion like that because they cared about the business. Yeah. You know, if they were always just yes, men, then I wouldn't need them. I, you know, I don't want that. I wanted people that would rebuke me that would also call me out and say, McIntyre, you're wrong in this. And here's why. And uh, I would mostly succumb to that. I really would, because I knew what I could do, but they were, they were flabbergasted when I would say, listen, we're going to go out there and, you know, we're going to hit, you know, $400 million in sales this, this year when nobody else in the industry had done that. Mm-hmm. And then not only do we hit 400 million, but we beat it by 20%. They were like, you know, they couldn't believe that. But so they had a respect for me in that short-term deal. And I had a respect for them in, in what position where they are in. So I just, I always felt, and I guess it was maybe as a God-given ability just to look at people and put their ace, put these people, the aces in their places or where they belong and leave them alone. And that's the probably in early days, Chris, I was very immature and I would come in and do the hokey pokey and I'd mess everything up. So uh, I learned after a few people tendered their resignation, I said, okay, I've got to let them do what they are to do. I'm paying them well. I need to let them be who they are. And that's one thing I coach a lot of people on is, you know, let your big dogs eat. Don't take it away from them. Don't take their bowl from them. Okay. Um, what are some of the things you look for, Michael, when, when you said um, you put your aces in the, their places and let them roll with it, um, but you said you're good at picking out where people belong. What, what are the, the little things that you look for in a person to ensure that they're going to the right place or going to have the right position in the company? Yeah, it's a good question, man. You got you're a good interviewer, Chris. I like this interview. This is so fun. Thank, thanks, man. After 500 or so, you know, you pick up a couple skills. <laughs> Amen. I get it. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I when I'm hiring somebody at that level, here's what the first thing I'm looking for is tragedy. Uh, I want I want somebody that's had some tragedy in their life. I want somebody that's had you know maybe a divorce. Maybe they come out. Maybe they're you know three years in AA. Maybe they've experienced death of a loved one. Uh, maybe they filed bankruptcy. Maybe they've had something happen that's been tragic. Tragic, and I, and I I found that person always in a C level or and uh, because I want to have somebody that's around because in our business, in my business, we we were running at you know we were running optimal. We were running at you know full tilt, and I like to say that we we. I, I was fortunate to have a couple of jets and we had be flying down a runway trying to tape the wing on. <laughs> uh-huh. And so that's how we ran with our business. And so I wanted people that would, if we got challenged, if we got had a storm that they weren't going to get rattled. And so with that, I found that these kind of people could handle the situations. And so then if I put it, let's say I brought in an MBA to be in charge of this, you know, all the money 
Uh, I want to see if, if I know that they're going to be good at it, if they're passionate about what they're at, listen, accounting, you know, I know how to do accounting and, you know, I took some lessons in some classes in college that I, I would just soon, you know, go see Jesus and sit there and do accounting. Okay. Right. I'm not, that's not my thing. So, but I want to see, I want to see my CFO or my, you know, I want to see him or her excited and passionate about their accounting. So when they come into my office and they tell me and they start, if they, if they're passionate about something, if they're excited about something, even though I might not be, then I know I've got my ace in their place. And yeah, no, no, go, go ahead. ahead. And so if, if, if they're excited about that, then they're where they're supposed to be. And I, on the opposite end, if they're not excited about it, if they're not, you know, just passionate about it. And I know everybody gets a down day or a down week, but if they're, ha- if they're not, then we're g- I need to question why are they in this spot? What, why, what is it that they don't like about this position? Because the way I paid in the compensation, it wasn't just a decent six figure income. It was something that they could attach to them to where they could make a seven figure income. If things went the right way in their bonus structure. That makes sense. Um, how so you started in 1992 what year was it michael when you exited the agency i sold the company in 2007 and it was like a three-month process into 2008 okay so we have about uh, 16 years there yeah, or so. I, it seems like it was longer <laughs> so, seven, yeah. So, um yeah if you could break that 16 years or so into different chapters of the life of uh of the company while you were there. Um, what would those chapters be? Wow. That's a great question. Uh, I'd probably say that, that probably the first five years was uh, probably like Gunsmoke, man, Maverick. It was like, okay. it was, it was uh, shooting from the hip, wherever you yeah, go. Like shooting it. from the hip, man. It was like, and it was really fascinating because we had such growth uh, in that early time even though in the second part of the company, we actually expanded more, but for that, you know, to get the train to leave the station, so to speak, takes a hell of a lot of energy. It takes a lot of coal to get that engine from the, from the uh, station. And so the first five years, it took everything, you know, it really did. And I, I risked everything. Uh, you know, I remember a lot of times I, our Amax bill would hit 80 grand and I'd beg Amax to give us another 10,000 that month. And they would, and then I'd go down there and, and, and wait, you know, it, I was, it's like the 45th day that I could take that check down there at the info Martin Dallas to give them the check. And I'd always wait till after three o'clock. So I can make sure day to clear the check. Uh-huh. And that was the, that was, it was Maverick. It was gun smoke. It was gambler time, but it was exciting. It was risk-taking. So, uh, but that's how we built that. And, and going from that, you know, that first five years was probably the gambler, the risk, the Maverick time. And then the next five years was, was pure expansion. And, and um, that's when we really got, we started getting wealthy. And when I say wealthy, I mean, the company was printing cash at that point. And so, uh, and we were setting records and it was so nice, Chris, because we had companies, insurance companies start giving us money, uh, just to get, get our business. And it was, it was nice to be pursued rather than a pursuer. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, you walk in at, 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 you know, your high school dance and all of a sudden somebody wants to ask you to dance. Like, like Sadie Hawkins, <laughs> it, it was like, this is different. Uh-huh. And so, uh, but we had, we did so well that we attracted a lot of people. And so, and we were the envy of the insurance industry because we had the fewest agents, but the most production. So our our productivity, our effectiveness was off the charts. And um, 
we were re, we were we were trailblazers. We were rewriting the whole industry, and uh, that was a lot of fun. It was it was a heady time. Uh, I bought a couple you know jets and spent some money and traveled a lot. And I probably I probably got into too much of an ego system at that time for that next period. So I I would say it was a uh, it was the Great Gatsby era for me for the next five years, if if that's a good analogy. Gotcha. Uh, had a lot of fun, made a lot of money, made a lot of people really wealthy, which was a lot of fun for us. Um, and, you know, it was, we expanded, we expanded from eight states to 40 states. Uh, uh, we had a company go up there and we had, we got into New York state, which was really cool, which was rare. We had to buy an insurance company in New York state to get there because you got to be in New York. You got to have your home office there. So that was interesting. And then probably the, the next uh, five years is probably, uh, I don't know, probably um, figuring out what, you know, why I'm not so excited anymore. And mm. probably, and, and probably at that point, I probably should have brought in professional management. Um, but I decided to sell. And the first suitor I had was General Electric. Jack Welch came down and wanted to buy the company, okay. uh, which was really kind of cool. And uh, I liked Jack Welch. I was a big, I was a big fan. I read all that stuff and him and uh, him and Michael Eisner were really booming at the time. And I kind of followed those guys at Disney. And, and so, uh, but there was a bad wall street journal article about the insurance industry that hit in Florida at that time. So that came, everything kind of came off the shelf. So that postponed selling the company about four more years. And probably during that four years, I wasn't as enthusiastic as I was the first, you know, 12. So uh, probably the, the, the last chapter would probably be the, the uh the exit strategy <laughs> you know yeah uh, i was getting to where i was getting tired you know we had insurance industry is highly regulated it's a great industry it's fun um but i was probably out there saying you know it's time to move on to something next yeah what do you think it was you know i think you said in chapter three you felt like you kind of lost the the flair for the company um you think you were just ready for something new I think so. I think I was probably at the boredom point. Uh, you know, my pockets were full. The money was great. And, and it's probably the worst thing. I probably, like I said, I probably would have been better to bring in a professional manager, uh, brought in a Wharton guy and said, okay, here, why don't I just, you know, be on the, you know, I'll be on the board. I'll be the chairman of the board and I'm going to go out and start a couple other deals. And that's probably what I should have did. Uh, but every time I looked to do that, I just, it was hard to give up to your baby. It yeah. just was Chris, you know, and I think that's one of the faults when I coach people now that, that they're at that place, you know, they made a couple hundred million bucks or they, you know, they're, they got their $10 million or whatever their number is to make them feel better about themselves. I say, okay, either let's sell this thing out or let's put somebody in place and let you go, you know, do what, what is it that you want to do now? You know, cause I think as entrepreneurs, we constantly have that burning desire to what's next. Yeah. Was for me anyway, like, like I'm doing all kinds of things now, which I, I really love to do. And people ask me always, do I miss the insurance business? And I say, no, I love coaching the insurance business. I like consulting it, but no, I did my run and it was a great run and we set records and, you know, we get, we got names in the hall of fame and I'm happy with that. Do you consult just uh, people in the insurance business or all different types of business? No, all different types. In fact, the insurance business is probably the least I do. Okay. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe they don't want to work as hard as I did. I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but I do all kinds. I do mostly entrepreneurs, um, you know, people that have anywhere from $5 million to, you know, $100 million in revenue a year. Uh, 
I do some startups, but very few. And I do a lot of C-level. Uh, I like C-level and I like the entrepreneurs is where, where my blood's at though. Um, so let's go back to those, those chapters of running your agency. We had Gunsmoke, then we had Great Gatsby, Grass Gatsby. Then we had, um, what what we, we call it? Kind of a, kind of an exit strategy. Exit. Kind of looking for yeah, kind yeah. of looking for the door. Ready yeah. for the next thing sort of thing. Yeah. What do, what do yeah. you think were the biggest mistakes in each chapter for you? Oh, gosh. <laughs> we'll start, we'll start wow. with Gunsmoke. Yeah. Uh, gosh. Probably bringing too much family in the first, the first couple of years. You know, I'd, I'd probably bring too many family members into the business and try to. I always, you know, I came from a very modest background and I wanted everybody to be rich. Right. And, um, you know, I wanted them to be rich like me. And so I would probably want to have that. And I shared too much. Yeah. And I think when you do shared, that, you sorry, get, shared too much financially or shared too much financial money okay. and positions. Yeah. yeah. And I think, and that was probably just because, you know, we didn't, I didn't grow up with money and I didn't have that. I didn't have the pedigree for that. You know, we didn't go to, you know, Wharton law school or, uh, or business school or NYU. Uh, so I wanted them to experience what I experienced and, and so that was probably, that was probably my bit, one of my biggest mistakes. I think I made, you know, sharing too much because of, I didn't have that pedigree uh, or that mentorship that I, that I really needed to handle. I was first generation money and that was difficult. Yeah. Okay. So, so maybe getting a mentor at, at that level that has walked that path to, to kind of guide you along the way would be a good Yeah, option. totally. Yeah. That'd have been a huge benefit. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So we'll go into a great Gatsby. It's Gatsby or Gapsy? Gatsby. Gatsby. I think it's great Gatsby. Yeah. Yeah. Leonardo, whatever that guy's name, did the latest one, which was kind of good. Yeah. It was good. Yeah. Um, yeah DiCaprio. Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio. DiCaprio yeah. yeah. Biggest mistakes during that time? Oh, spent too much money. Uh, gosh, you know, I, I wanted my own jet and I went out and bought one. I, I chartered a couple of jets and I went out and bought one. Then I bought another one. Uh, and thought I was going to be a aviation tycoon. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, and I, I was, I, I spent $6 million one day on a plane. Didn't tell my wife that, you know, that didn't go good. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And so I think that made a mistake and I, you know, um, so if I, if I could go back to then, I'd have probably just, you know, chartered and leased, you know, instead of doing that, but you know, you just do stupid things. I mean, I was in my thirties, you know, making, you know, tens of millions of dollars a year. And so you just do some stupid things, but, um, I came out okay, uh, because of, you know, the tax benefits of, of being able to write things down. Mm -hmm. But I think that that's probably one of them. I spent too much. And then, um, probably the other thing was, uh, I probably didn't, didn't let go enough uh, let the managers do what they really wanted to do. I think one one of the biggest things, the insecurities a lot of entrepreneurs have is losing control. And I think they they feel that they're going to lose control, but it's really, a, it's not true. And all they have to do is let the people do their job. And, in, and I think that's probably, I should have done more than that during that period of time. Okay. So then we move into exit strategy. Um, mm -hmm. Biggest mistakes during that period. Uh, gosh, I, I would say mostly getting bored and then going, you know, uh, and not, not, not getting that fire refreshed. You know, I think really, if I, if I could go back in time and say, okay, I should have stuck it out a little bit longer, maybe did it differently. One of the, uh, a wise man taught me, uh, 
um, one of my mentors, he said, you know, listen, whatever you do, don't ever, don't ever work to sell your company. Work like you're never going to sell your company. Always keep pouring into it constantly. And don't look left. Don't look right. Look straight ahead. Put the blinders on and always be pouring into that company like it's going to be there forever. Mm-hmm. And I didn't do that. I think I looked at the barn. I think I saw the barn too early. Okay. And, um, oh, that's fan. That's really great advice. Um, if, if, okay. So if, if there's so many questions I have, <laughs> <laughs> what would you, so the billionaire is a new millionaire, right? Or a billion dollar company is a new million dollar company. Like it yeah. seems like there's million dollar companies everywhere and that's just not yes. right. And, um, did you ever think on that trajectory that you were going to hit a billion dollar company? No, I never did. I never even thought about it to be honest with you. In fact, I didn't even figure it out until later and added it all up, but I didn't No, I didn't. I, you know, in fact, I remember uh, during the building phase and into the Gatsby phase, I remember quite often, you know, we were, you know, we were doing about 10 to 15, $18 million a week in sales and we were setting records and I never thought much about it, Chris. I really didn't. I didn't think, wow, look at me. I just wanted, I just said, you know, let's keep pouring it on. Let's keep pouring it on. Because what I, what I got excited about is how much people made working for us. Yeah. And watching these salespeople get wealthy. That's what excited me. I, I loved handing out, you know, checks to people, you know, $20,000 checks, $30,000 checks for a week's work and sales. And that's what, that's what got me excited. That's what I really loved. I never sat down there and said, I want to create a billion dollar agency. That was never in my vocabulary. I didn't think about that. That wasn't, that wasn't there. You know, what was the, was that then the prime motivation of helping other people become successful? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. We created 175 millionaires in our company and, wow. and I, I really enjoyed that because it, it was life-changing for them. You know, I knew how much money changed my life, you know, uh, and how it, you know, affected generations and it was generational wealth I created. And I wanted that for other people. I wanted them to be able to have that. And this is before, you know, uh, I became a Christian later in life, but uh, this was before them. But I but I still like to have giving of that and giving those people that opportunity. I love to have I love building the platform, Chris, for people to get up there that we're going to be you know, maybe uh, a misfit anywhere mm-hmm. else and they could, they could come in and be a star with our company. Right. Um, starting, like knowing what you know now, starting over, you probably get asked this question, but you know, it's worth asking again, uh, knowing what you know now and say you were starting from zero, would you, would you go into the insurance agency business? What, what would you, what business would you go into? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, today, I, you know, when I coach these entrepreneurs, I said, man, you've got it so made. I'm so envious of you all, uh-huh. you know, to be, to be 30 years old and have the opportunities these 30 year olds have is just, Chris, it's incredible. Right. It, it's never been more easy, easier, more lucrative, more uh, fast paced ever to make a million dollars, to make a billion dollars ever in, in, in the history of our time, in my opinion. Um, but they go back, they go about it the wrong way so often because all they're looking at is the glitz and glam. They're not yeah. looking at the, they're not looking at the grind. So like when I get, when I do get it, when I do get a, you know, a 30 something in here, you know, that's got his business is struggling, trying to figure it out. And if they submit to the process <laughs> and I say that, yeah. 
they've got to submit to the process. One of the things is they're already good. They're already, they're already, you know, you know, they're, they're Tom Brady in the making. They just, but they think they're already Tom Brady. And that's when you, that's what they've got to, they've got to say, okay, let me check my ego here so I can cash a check. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, but I love finding those, those guys and gals out there that, that get it and say, okay, I'm going to submit to the process under a master. And when you submit under the master, then you can really go because, you know, it's, it's so easy to make money nowadays. It's just amazing. It's kind of a lost art, isn't it? To, to, I mean, those are, those are controversial words of themselves submit to a master these days, it seems like, but, um, what's that book, uh, that talks about, I think, um, Paulo Coelho wrote it. Um, Oh, I think I know what you're the talking alchemist, about. The Alchemist, The Alchemist. Yes, yes. And and there's also another one about like seven principles of getting rich that they were written and around. Well, or they were written later, but it was about um, the the time, the, like pre 1700 in Ara- mm-hmm. in Arabia, right? Yeah. And it was common for a uh, apprentice or a young person mm-hmm. to get a master to learn That's a trade. Right. That's right. right. And right. their job, um, the most successful ones learn the trade and then, and, and they did that with a very open mind for a really long time. Right. Yeah. And, and I've done coaching and consulting before too. And it seems like one out of 10, uh, clients will be really great at listening to, uh, you know, keeping an open mind and listening to the master. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and what are, some good tips uh, that you would give to the listeners out there. Yeah. If they're getting consulting um, or coaching, what, yeah. for them to kind of really stay open-minded and, and, and check their ego so they can get the best results possible. Good question. Yeah, I think, you know, coaching, everybody's a life coach nowadays, business coach, <laughs> gurus, you know, everybody and their brother. And what, what I tell people is this, look, there's a lot of great coaches out there and there's a lot of great mentors. And, and uh look for the fruit in their life. And what do I mean by that? You know, what have they been successful at, right? Mm -hmm. Do they have a successful marriage? You know, have they been married or are they single? Uh, And it matters, you know, it just depends on, you know, what you want out of a coach, Uh, you know, are they financially sound and have they had a you know, successful business and have they had several successful businesses? And, and so I, I tell people, look for the fruit in their life and, and then interview, you've got to have a chemistry with your coach. Um, or your consultant, you've got to, yeah. you know, people, I, I, people have hired me just to come in there and, you know, fire everybody, you know, and that's fine. You know, uh, I, I, you know, firing people is a great thing for them. It's better for them than it is than the company letting them go. So, uh, but I think it's, it's, it's something that, you know, if you're seeking good consulting or good uh, coaching, look for the fruit, look for the referral, look for, uh, what it is that you want to get in. And then once you get in there with that person, submit to the process. And, uh, you know, it's the process and the process is something it, the process is supposed to be difficult. Okay. All of this is supposed to be difficult. It, it's supposed to be hard to make millions of dollars. It's supposed to be hard to start a company and grow it to a profitable, uh, you know, margin to where you can, you know, pay for your kid's college education. It's, it needs to be hard. If it wasn't hard, it wouldn't be worth anything, you know? Uh, and so, you know, these things, you, you, you find somebody that's done it before that blazed the trail. That's got, got the rooms. I, you know, I often tell people that, look, you know, learning from your own mistakes is a 
wise person, but learning from other people's mistake is genius. Yeah. Right. And so you want to find somebody that's lived life, you know, that's filed a tax return or two that understands what it's like to be audited by the IRS. That understands what it's like to go out and borrow a couple of million bucks and lay awake nights trying to make payroll that understands to try to get things, something from zero to $500 million is not going to be easy, but it's going to be a grind. And it's like when I cut, when I do coach uh, a, a, a young entrepreneurs that have family, I get the wife involved or the husband involved and say, hey, this is going to be a family commitment. This is a family affair, right? This is not going to be, he's going to go out there and work and you're going to sit home and just hopefully he makes it or he's, she's going to go out and work and you're going to keep your day job at Starbucks. No, this is going to be a family affair and it's going to be everybody all in. It's all in all the time. And if you're not ready for that grind and that commitment, then it's not ready for you, you know, uh, because you, you, to be an entrepreneur, a successful one, you've heard the saying, you know, you've got to work harder than anybody has worked for the next five years. So you can live like nobody else can live for the rest of your life. Yeah. And there is some truth to that, but know this, if you are a true entrepreneur or a business person, okay, once you tasted that first blood, that first million or that first hundred thousand, whatever it is, it's your number, okay, you're going to work like this the rest of your life, in my opinion, because it's fun, it's yeah. exciting, because you can create something from nothing, and whether, you know, if you're, you know, for a believer like me, I get to glorify God with that and help other people, but even if you're not, you can do good for other people, because you cannot take it with you, unbeknownst to a lot of people it does not fit in yeah. the coffin and they won't let you take it and so you want to be able to create more because we live in a system that the matrix is so beautiful it you know velocity begets velocity and that's how our money grows m1 and m2 and so when you do that it's awesome but it does take it does take a commitment find a good coach find somebody you know i like to find people who have the same you know belief system that i have uh and you know I've been coached by Jewish men. I've been coached by uh, non-believers. I've been coached by believers since I became one. And so, but it's important, you know, to find somebody that you have a like-minded with them. And generally within, you know, I, I you know, people say, I want to have somebody coach me that's, you know, five years older. I would say you need somebody at least 10 to 20 years older that's had more life experience than you. I think that's yeah. important. I, I, I would agree with that. Um, have you heard the... It all goes back into the box story before. <laughs> no, but it's in, in like in parallel to what you were talking about. But there's a it's a really good YouTube video where this guy's talking about how his grandmother taught him how to play Monopoly. And uh, she would always beat him growing up like she was a she was a master at it. And he played so hard for so long um, to try and beat her. And he never could. Eventually, he I think he went away to high college or something. And he kept playing and kept playing. He was just really motivated to beat his grandmother at, at Monopoly. And so he comes back from school and he plays her and he beats her and he's ecstatic. Like he finally beat his grandmother at Monopoly. And um, she go he goes, I've learned the mastery skill of, of Monopoly and commerce and now I'm ready for the world. And she goes, no, you're not because there's still one more lesson. And he goes, what do you mean? She goes. At the end of the day, at the end of every single Monopoly game, what do we do? And he goes, well, we just put all the pieces and put it back in the box. And she goes, exactly. At the end of your life, after you play the commerce game, the capitalist game, the entrepreneur game, your st everything is going to go back into the box. Your body, your, the history, um, all the things that you have, it just goes back. And it was never yours in the first place. It's a really good, good. lesson. Wow. Really good lesson. Yeah. I love um, that. Yeah, yeah.
So um, I'd like to talk kind of briefly before uh, we move on to like some other mindset stuff. Mm -hmm. um, the process of you, did you, so you worked with the, when the, you exited, the company went public and you worked with them as they were going through their launch to go public? Yeah. So uh, we were, we, our agency, we had uh, the company that we were working with, the insurance underwriter was American Equity Insurance in okay. uh, Des Moines, Iowa. Very okay. successful now. Uh, and I helped get it started. I put the first hundred million dollars in this company and a uh, great company. And so we launched, they, we were supposed to take this thing out and it was supposed to go public in 2001. And obviously we are, you know, we were really, we were all down in New York, uh, on, uh, September 9th and, uh, I left, uh, I just had to come back from Hawaii and I was tired. I had my kids with me. And so we flew back to Dallas and the companies, all, all the company and the attorneys and all that stuff, they were there. They weren't going to launch it that week. Uh, but it was, uh, we were going to launch it by the end of 2001 or 2002. Obviously it got delayed. Uh, and then uh, they, I, American Equity IPO'd in uh, 2003. Okay. And yeah, we were instrumental in that. I got to be on the floor uh, wow. in New York City, and that was kind of cool and kind of fun. And uh, yeah, that was all good. Uh, made lots of money, which was all good. And watching that whole process was very humbling and very fun. And I watched, you know, it, it's a lot of work. It was probably more work back then maybe than it is now. I don't know. But uh, yeah, the company's done real well since then. But yeah, and so then I uh, started uh, in 2006, I started looking for uh, suitors. After uh, GE pulled out of their offer, I started looking for other suitors. And uh, I found a couple and uh, put the deal together. It took about uh, three months to finalize it. And, and then uh, it was a two-year payout. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and did you go immediately into... Uh, consulting coaching or, or what'd you do? Yeah. Yeah. The first year I was kind of depressed to be honest with you. Yeah, uh, I, I hear that a lot. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean the, the, you know, the fantasy of going to the beach all the time and hanging out and drinking scotch and smoking cigars. Although I did some of that, uh, which I enjoy a good scotch and a good cigar, but I did, I didn't, you know, I didn't just go to the beach right away and hang out. It was kind of, everything came to a screeching halt. It was kind of like, you know, you're running at, you know, a hundred miles an hour for, you know, 17 years and all of a sudden it stops. It's kind of a, it's kind of a weird thing to have happen. And so it took me about a year to get adjusted and get, get my sea legs back in order. And, um, <clears throat> and I had, a, I had a pretty good transformation during that period of time, which was really a lot of fun and good. And then I started doing consulting and I uh, started doing coaching and from the strangest places that came and I didn't really, I wasn't really looking for it. It just happened. Mm -hmm. Okay. Makes sense. Somebody approach you and they're like, Hey, what do you, yeah. <clears throat> you know, they, I, yeah. And it's fact that, you know, uh, I'd have these small companies, you know, say, Hey, listen, I saw that, you know, you came in and doing some business over here. You know, we'd love to talk to you about, you know, we're, we're, we're struggling. We're trying to figure this thing out and you know, how much do you charge? And at first I didn't charge me anything. Cause I thought this is, you know, why should I charge you? And this is like, you know, me, you know, waking up in the morning, this is easy. Yeah. Um, but then I found out what I found out, Chris, is real soon is, is if I didn't charge people money, they didn't do it. They didn't take it seriously. You yeah. know, I would show up at a meeting and they would be 30 minutes late. Well, I said, this is BS. I'm not playing that game. Mm -hmm. So I started charging them money and guess what? They showed up. They showed up. up. Yeah. <laughs> they showed up. The more they pay, quite often, the more accountable they are, right? Like, Amen. <laughs> Amen. That's exactly right. The more yeah. you pay, the earlier you show up. Yeah. Yeah. It was funny how that worked. And they actually 
followed my advice and my assignments. And, yeah. and, you know, some of them, you know, did extremely well. I had one company get to uh, $500 million in revenue in two years. Yeah. It was really, really awesome. So you talk about po poverty mindset a lot, mm -hmm. and um, it's a thing that plagues us uh, and it can for our entire lives, whether we know it or not. And I think that's why a lot of people, um, you know, do get to a point when they make a significant amount of money, then they spend it, um, I don't want to say irresponsibly, but um, irrationally, maybe, I don't know, maybe yeah. that's a better word. And, um, and, and so it kind of haunts us unless we work on those internal programmings around poverty mindset. So what, what are some tips for the listeners, Michael, that you could give give them around um, overcoming or changing their mindset? Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, it's a great question. I think there is a lot of, you know, I, I do a lot of work with, with, with some churches and stuff, and there is a big poverty mindset in the church, believe it or not. But, uh, you know, I always say, look, you know, the Good Samaritan wouldn't been a, wouldn't been famous if it weren't for money, right? They had <laughs> yeah. to have money. And so money is important. And a lot of people, you know, especially believers are in the church or even, you know, they think that that's not really a, a, a should be a big deal. And I, I just don't believe that. I think, you know, when people say I can't afford it, that's a negative mindset. Right. Um, my mother taught me early on is to say positive affirmations. You know, one of my affirmations when I was 12 years old, 13 years old, 14 was like the only difference between me and a millionaire is while he's working on a second million, I'm working on my first. I like that. And and I would say that constantly, constantly, day, every day, you know, the, I would always, you know, the more I give, the more I receive, the more uh, I'm willing to let a lot, of, I'm willing to let large amounts of money make my life be easy. These are positive affirmations. Pew Research said that 87% of our self-talk is negative. Right. Yeah. I'm too fat. I'm too old. I'm too ugly. I'm too skinny. I'm too bald. I'm too hairy. I'm too, you know, I'm too poor. I, I have, you know, I don't have a college degree or, you know, I have no friends or my car's like, we keep saying these things, you know, about ourselves constantly day in and day out until we start believing it. And so it's really important that we put positive things in, you know, garbage in, garbage out. So how, you know, if you don't have friends and let me just tell you, speak to the audience out there. If you don't have friends that are speaking life, positive life over you, if they're not telling you how good you are and how great you can be and that your dreams are amazing, if they're not supporting you in that, then brothers and sisters, find new friends. Yeah. Okay? You, you cannot, you cannot soar with the eagles. If you're flocking with the turkeys, man, uh -huh. get away from those people. You know, you only have a few people to be around you and the, your really good, close friends, really good, close ones that won't judge you for making mistakes, but will support you in your efforts to get to where you want to be. So I always tell people, you know, choose the people, your friends, your friends and the books that you read are the things that are going to make a difference for you in the next five years. Mm -hmm. And you find positive books, positive. I like true stories. I do. Uh, I like motivational books. Uh, I, I love Jack Welch books straight from the gut. It's a masterpiece. Um, you know, I, I cried when he pulled out my deal because I, I just love Jack. Well, uh, well, well, you know, uh, but he's great. You know, uh, Jim Collins, Good to Great, another classic one. I think it's a great book. Uh, it's got real good practical stuff. Uh, in the Pit with a Snowy Lion, uh, In the Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day by Mark Batterson is another great book. These books really inspire me. Uh, the other things that that I tell people is is 
watch positive movies you know don't yeah. go watch the junk don't be go watching the, you know you know the gratuitous sex stuff and the in the in the horrible language and that you know the you know the the drug stuff go watch positive movie pursuit of happiness what a great movie that will smith did king richard another great will smith movie these things are positive influences on us and so I like those things and then keep and find people that's going to say, Hey, listen, McIntyre, that's not smart, but I'll support you in how you get to that place. I wouldn't do it that way. I would do it this way. Positive influence, positive affirmations. Uh, you know, if I, you know, listen, I've been broke twice. Stacy and I have been broke twice. I mean, broke, broke, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> and look, and we didn't like it either time. I want it's you to not know fun. That. I've been no. through it too. It's not fun. Yes, it, it sucks real bad. And so, and I, I, I rather have, I like, you know, I'd rather pay the IRS a million dollars than be broke. Okay. Yeah. And I hate paying the IRS anything. So, so paying them a million dollars was a big moment in my life. And so I get it. And, uh, but with that wealth, it comes responsibility. And so I think it's really important that iron sharpens iron. You need to be around positive people, people that are going to support you. And, Listen, you're worthy. You know, first of all, the the fact that you're breathing right now and living and listening to this, the odds of you existing are one in two hundred million. So you've got that going for you. You beat the odds. If you're living in the United States of America, you beat the odds also in one in one hundred ninety. Okay, so you're blessed. You've hit the jackpot, as Warren Buffett said, just living here in the United States of America. That's something to be grateful for. The other thing is we live in a time 2022 to where we live better than Solomon did. You know, mm -hmm. just on our phone here, you, your access, you got access to 35,000 of the best music in the air that's ever been written in the world yeah. at your fingertip. You know, you've got the best clothing, you've got the best transportation, you got the best technology ever. So there's a lot to be grateful for. So, you know, that poverty mindset, all you have to do is start saying, hey, I, I'm not going to buy that today. Not yet. OK, I'm not going to get I'm not going to go to Cancun yet. I'm going someday. Get you a dream board. Put up that Cancun. Put up that Patek Philippe. Put up that Rolex. Put up that Maybach. You know, whatever it is that you want. I like material things, okay? But I, I'll tell you this. My neighbor, my late neighbor, Ross Perot, told me, he said, listen, Mike, he said, you know, material things are a lot of fun. They're great. But they will disappoint you because they break. Yeah. That changed everything for me. He told me that back in 1992. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, I'm in Cancun right now. Actually, just down the road. Just <laughs> I love Cancun. I love Cancun. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, what other thing I, I kind of want to talk about, because I think this is important, um, is handling conflicts with close relationships. And I think it's important to build any size of business, but also manage your life um, with your family and your friends and those close friends that you attract or get rid of. And, um, we had, do you know who Chris Foss is? I do not. He was, he, he wrote the book, never split the difference. Oh, uh, wow. I like that you, title. Yeah. And he was the FBI's lead, uh, international negotiator, uh, hostage negotiator for 20 years. And, okay. and he, he talked these, this, I'm leading up to something, but he was, he was talking about, um, instead of PTSD, you have PTS growth where, mm -hmm. right. And so whatever traumatic, uh, experience you had in your life, there's also an incredible growth opportunity on the backside of it. If you bring yourself up now, um, one of the things I, I liked about him is because as a negotiator, you have to handle some of the most difficult, conflicting conversations in the world. And if you can move through those, the growth through that. 
is really important. And I know you talk about this a lot too, handling conflicts within in close relationships. What's your strategy uh, when a conflict comes up with either somebody in your family or in a company on how to move forward with that? Great question. Yeah. Uh, you know, in my company, I'll refer to that first. In my company, it was always, <laughs> it was funny. I learned this early on because it got real boring with hearing how everybody, you know, was PO'd about somebody else and what they did or allegedly did, right? So, you know, somebody come in with their hair on fire because, you know, Jane, you know, knocked over their computer and, you know, kicked them in the head or something, <laughs> something stupid, right? And so it was stupid to me because I really didn't, if I cared any less, I wouldn't care at all, but I knew that it mattered to them, yeah. right? And so they would bring this stuff to me. And I guess I just always had that. I never... I never tripped over those things. I never, I, I always call it, you know, picking up uh, pennies as if they are manhole covers, in my opinion. And so, nice. uh, but they would come to me with this and I'd say, okay, so finally I learned, I said, okay, get, let's get Jenny in here and let's get Penny in here. And let's, let's, let's talk about this. Let's get everybody in here on this conflict. Right. So, you know, she unplugged your computer and kicked it down and, you know, you fell and bumped your head. Okay. What happened? Why did that happen? And then 99 times out of a hundred, the story changes. Yeah. It just changes. And so when you have people all in the same room or on the phone together, you know, if they're in different states or different offices in these conflicts, and I've been in mediations before and lawsuits, and it always changes when, when everybody's in the same room and it just does. Uh, so I would, I didn't mind conflict. I didn't mind that. I thought it was healthy. Uh, the other thing we would do is we would do a clear the decks. And like when I, I'm with companies, one of the things we do now is we do a thing called clear the decks. And uh, so we get all the, generally we get all the, you know, the management team in a room or on a retreat somewhere, uh, anywhere from, you know, four to, you know, 40 of them. And we set up ground rules and the ground rules is, is everybody gets to hold on to the football. Uh, literally we bring a football and while they're holding on to the football, they get the floor for 15 minutes and nobody can say anything. Nice. And they can say, they can say literally whatever they want to say. They can cuss, they can swear, they can do anything except hit somebody or throw furniture. They can do whatever they want to do. Okay. And so we, this is called the clear the decks and I've done it with several companies and uh, hundreds of companies. And every time the CEO comes in there and says, listen, this is going to be really good. I think we're very open company. I don't think we have any issues. <laughs> I say, okay, listen, uh, listen, <laughs> Are you a praying man? If you are, I want you to pray yourself up right now because uh -huh. you're going into the lion's dead, bro. And one, the, the first thing is I want to say you've got courage yeah. okay? and uh, you're going to need it. And so, but what it does do though, Chris, is it, it, it is unbelievable what the ROI is on that one day event. And uh, I've done it with big families. I've done it with big companies. I've done it with small companies mm. and with churches and it's amazing what happens in Clear the Decks um, because nine times out of 10, it's misunderstandings. And the other thing it is, is people don't know where they're coming from. They didn't know that somebody, you know, has had cancer in their family for the last five years and they've had to take care of them. They had to move in to their bedroom and deal with this stuff day in and day out. They, they just don't know because because we're always trying to protect ourselves and we're always trying to be something we're not. Yeah? yeah, we're putting on the mask. So in that kind of conflict, I love working with companies in that aspect. That's part of the consulting and coaching. But then when I had my company, just to deal with that conflict or deal with problems, I would just bring all the parties in. And unless it was me, if it was me having a problem with somebody, then what I would do is I'd bring a mediator in because I knew my ego 
was very fragile. And I say that, you know, sincerely because uh, I had to deal with rejection issues growing up. You know, mm -hmm. my parents got divorced. And so I knew that I had some issues and I didn't want to bring that into the market, in, into my business. Um, and the re main reason was because there's money involved. It mattered what I said. It mattered how I performed. It mattered what, how I treated people. And so I bring mediators in and I always didn't like the result or the outcome, but I, I had to grow up and understand that. With family, with with my you know marriage of thirty six years, look, my wife and I have had rough patches all through it. Uh, back when the business was growing during the during the Maverick and the Gatsby years, I mean, we were busy. That's why I had a jet. I had forty offices. I mean, I'd hit five offices in one day and be. I'd leave at four o'clock in the morning. And I'd get home at eleven o'clock at night. Uh, I wanted to sleep in the same bed, right? Uh, I'd have to get, I'd have to have two sets of pilots because they could only, even on a private P91, I, I, they could only do like 12 hour flights. And so I went to extraordinary circumstances to be home at night, but it was good for me to be like that. But then, you know, I was a CEO at the office. And when I came home, I was the garbage man. Right. And that was a, that, that in the early days, that was a really tough transition because I'm making millions of dollars. People are all telling me how great I am. Then I come home and I don't have that same I don't get that same response. Right. So that was an immaturity factor that I had to grow up in. And it did create conflict with my wife and I. It did create conflict in, in a lot of ways. And so we dealt with that. Uh, and we we dealt with it in many different ways. One of them was it would finally be have a knockdown, drag out fight, you know, and, and they have our own version of clear the decks uh, with a lot of tears and jeers. And so but by the grace of God, I got through that period of time and I watched some other people and I did get some mentorship uh, to deal with that because, you know, when you come home, you know, uh, you know, like, as the Bible says that, you know, you know, you, you treat your wife as, the, as Jesus loved the church. And so it was a it was a big transition for me to die and be sacrificial of that situation because. I did work hard. I was very successful. Money did come in big, but I worked really hard. And so when I came home, I wanted that gratitude and that attitude, but it didn't always happen because there was, a, there was three children here. We had three daughters. And so she had her own thing to do. And so I had to learn how to respect that and honor her in that process. And so mm -hmm. we got through it by the grace of God, but it wasn't always easy. Uh, that's incredible. I, you know what I've really liked about you and your personality is that you know, all of the things that you've done, and I've always been an optimist, a realistic optimist, that you're, you're incredibly positive. And sometimes overly positive people get a bad rap, you know, in, in any industry that they're in. Mm. Um, but you're like a really great example of, you know, that, that positivity really working and how we can use that to change our lives, to grow our businesses, whether you're building a, a small company, a small business, an internet business, or or, or yeah. just using that in your life. And I, I really you. appreciate that about you. Yeah. Thank you for the acknowledgement. Yeah. We're going to wrap up there, Michael. I think that that's an yeah. incredible podcast. Um, before we finish, is there anything you would like to leave the listeners with? Any place we can uh, find you to check out more about what you have going on? And any, any yeah, else? I've got, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> my staff told me, make sure you show the book. Next Level Life. Yes. <laughs> the yeah. Next Level Life. Yeah, it's available at all bookstores and Amazon.com. Uh, and so uh, also, uh, you can go to uh, our website, of course, which is themichaelmcintyre.com, uh -huh. themichaelmcintyre.com. We've got our things there and we've got coaching and, and consulting and all that stuff and check it out. We've got next level experience that we put on uh, about four times a year, which is a, uh, a live event, which is incredibly intense and amazing. And 
we have a lot of fun. We have major breakthroughs in that. Well, you know, I always tell people, I guess the biggest thing I want to leave people is look, don't be afraid to step out of the boat, you know, biblically referenced. Uh, don't, don't be afraid to take a chance because your biggest, your biggest breakthroughs, your biggest opportunity is on the other side of that biggest fear. Yeah. And one of the things that holds most business people back, and I coach a lot of people to say, hey, you know, I've got, you know, a couple million dollars in my 401k. I want to cash it out and start a business. It's great. But I'm scared. I said, okay, that's great. It's good to be scared. Okay. But let's just not be stupid right? Scared's okay. And scared kind of prevents you from putting your hand on a hot stove. So let's avoid the hot stove and let's, let's go down this. But sometimes they never pull the trigger because they, that fear overcomes them in that process, or they go the other way and, and, and be, you know, totally irresponsible in that system. So what, what I, what I like people to know is look, everybody gets scared. Everybody gets into fear. It's how you handle it. If you push yourself through that, in my opinion, your biggest breakthroughs on the other side of that fear, relationally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, and financially. So I hope that helps somebody. Absolutely. I I guarantee it does. Okay. So we've got, uh, we'll put the links in the show notes, the michaelmcintyre.com. And then we'll put your book in there as well, Michael. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing all your tips and tricks and wisdom with us. And (laughs) I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank you for the opportunity, Chris. I love your podcast and congratulations. And enjoy Cancun, bro. Oh, I will. Thank thank you very much. Listeners, we're going to wrap up there. Thank you guys for tuning in once again. And we'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us. And once again, we wanted to remind you about our adventures and trips for entrepreneurs in our private community. If you enjoy luxury trips to the Caribbean, going on bucket list adventures around the world, or just traveling to connect with other established entrepreneurs, then be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to stay connected at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. Thanks for joining the show today, and we'll see you on the next episode.